I'm glad that I'm here because I took a tremendous fall last night. Here we go. We're back to the party. No, I'm just joking. But uh, there's some words to the, one of the songs we just sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's a great um, thing to revisit as we go to look into the, God's Word this morning. Verse 2 says, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. I love that message. It's fitting for today for sure. It's really fitting for the times that we live in, that God has come to reign in His people. And I titled the, uh, the title to my sermon is, <clears throat> The King Keeps Getting Closer. The king is getting closer. If you think back in the Old Testament, uh, God led His people as their king, but he wasn't, he wasn't there on a daily basis, so to speak. And then they wanted a physical king, like all the rest of the other nations. And God tells His prophet, He says, hey, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me as king. And so He gives them a physical king and on and on through the, the years the story goes through the Old Testament. The king that's most often referred to is obviously King David, of which Joseph, the husband, the one to be betrothed to Mary, Jesus' mother, was in that lineage. And that's the first chapter of Matthew, kind of leads to that point. We're taking a little break from First Peter. If you haven't been here, um, we thought we'd take just a little break through the holidays and pick it back up either next week or, or the following. But Matthew 2 gives us this real intriguing look at Jesus, the baby king. And Matthew 2 often is kind of overlooked in the Christmas story most of the time. And I know a lot of you guys uh, this time of year read through the, uh, the accounts and the writings and the Gospel of Luke, and that's good, that's great. For whatever reason, my mind and my uh, thoughts really turn to this intriguing story in Matthew 2. And uh, I was sharing with Barry before the service, I almost scrapped the whole thing yesterday and started fresh and decided to hold this till next week. Um, reality set in that there wasn't time to do that. And uh, so I didn't, so here's what we have, here's what the Lord has for today. But uh, as we go through this, let's bear in mind a few things, hopefully that would encourage us when we get to the end, that there's, uh, there's some uh, various different characters in this story, and notice how they recognize and respond to who this baby is. And I think that it's telling, it's fitting, it's good for us in that same light, how do we recognize and then respond to this baby king? And you're going to see, some, you're going to see some, a lot of variation, really. And uh, hopefully we'll land at a good spot. Let's jump into Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 starts off and it's, he says this, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? 
For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are you not the least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I might come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when, he had, <clears throat> when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. As I mentioned, there's a variety of different uh, people mentioned here in this passage. We're going to start with the first one, really, that's mentioned, other than Jesus. Uh, the first one is King Herod. King Herod. He was given the title King of the Jews, not because he was Jewish. Not because he, he really even cared for the Jewish people that much. Um, but he was given that title by the Roman emperor because that was the area that he was going to uh, rule over on behalf of the Roman Empire. In some ways, Herod was a good ruler, if I can use that word. Uh, in some ways, he was a good ruler. He was really an empire builder. Um, he built what's called Herod's Temple, which was a, a, a kind of a bigger, expanded version, if you will, uh, of the temple there in Jerusalem. Um, he built um, he built new ports in Caesarea. He built forts in Masada and Herodium, city named after him. But not only was he kind of good in that sense, Herod was horrible in another way. He was extremely vindictive. He was an extremely jealous uh, ruler. Uh, it was kind of a take no prisoners and it didn't matter who it was. He was feared. He was vicious. And he would take out anybody that posed a threat to his position of leadership. And that included people of his own family. Uh, history tells us that Herod had multiple sons and a wife murdered because they posed a threat to his position. Uh, that's not a nice guy. Agreed? Everybody agree with that? Like, that's, that's not the kind of leader you want leading you. But that was the kind of person that he was, especially when it comes to family, especially when it comes to, to those types of things. And it's not the, the pattern that we have for ourselves, obviously, in how to lead. But this was, uh, this, was his, this was his way. Not a nice guy. Especially, though, especially 
when three foreign dignitaries show up and ask for directions to the house of what they call the future king, where is the baby born king of the Jews? If you look in the scriptures there, if you look in that verse, uh, <clears throat> when Herod the king heard this, verse 3 is the verse we really want to circle in on right now. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, obviously. Uh, he's been battling back people uh, his whole time in leadership. And all of Jerusalem with him. The little bit of backstory here is that, that there was a lot of uh, uh, territorial wars and battles and tension that was going on. And the, the area that, by which the Magi had come from, they were in conflict with the Roman Empire. And so there was tension there. So when you have two people from the opposite you know, side of the war coming as dignitaries, and they're looking for somebody specific, and they're not just looking for somebody. They weren't looking for directions to the gas station. They were looking for the person that they claimed was the future king of the Jews. They were looking for that person that would be a threat to Herod's leadership. And so he was troubled, the word says, and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him in that sense. This is an existential threat to the Roman Empire and specifically to the Herodian area, uh, which included Israel. The first point I wanted to make today is, is that here in this story, as we've kind of looked at Herod, and I've only given you just a, a brief synopsis of his leadership, but he really represents one category of people when it comes to recognizing Jesus, when it comes to responding to Jesus. Herod represents the counterfeit king. He represents counterfeit leadership. He wasn't the real king of the Jews. He wasn't the real king that was to come and to rescue Israel. He was standing in a spot, but he was standing there as a counterfeit. And he would do anything to protect or preserve and to propagate his own kingdom. What does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us? I know it means this for me, but there was a, a long period in my life before I became a believer that that type of characterization could be overlaid into my life. Right? And I think that we could all kind of see that picture for ourselves. That there's nothing... There was a time up until my, you know, end of my teens, my early 20 years, that I would do anything to protect and preserve and to propagate my own kingdom, nothing was going to come against that. I'll tell you, somebody came against that, and I'm glad that he did, right? I'm glad that he melted me down in repentance, if not for only my own sake. The characterized attitude here by Herod is simply this. I refuse to allow my position to be undermined by anybody or anything. The second group of people that we can look at, by the way, today's sermon is intentionally abbreviated to give you guys more time as family, as people have come in. And we have, a, we have a whole bunch of people that are here that have not normally here, that used to live here, used to be here, but are back. And so we do indeed want to welcome you back. The second group of people that Matthew describes 
or what I term the religious disinterested. The religious disinterested. Verse 4 in chapter 2 of Matthew says, And when he, talking about Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, talking about the Jewish people, the Jewish religious leadership, when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod's disturbed because of the message that he gets about the future king of Israel. Now he takes that same mentality to the religious leaders who in reality don't seem to be too interested. And the sad part is, is they were the ones that should have been on the watchtower on behalf of their people. They were the ones that should have been up on the wall looking and searching and examining the scriptures and who it is. Rather, it's foreign dignitaries. It's these foreign magi that in my estimation, and many biblical scholars believe that they're, they're kind of the, the scholarly descendants of Daniel who had taught them in his time in Babylon, had taught them what the Word says and to look forward to this coming King. It's these foreign dignitaries that are really standing in the place, if it were, on the watchtower, on behalf of the people, saying, where's this baby king at? We've come to see him. And these guys, these religious disinterested leaders in Israel, eh, they didn't really want anything to do with it. They answered his questions. They answered his questions. So they said to them, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are you not the least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler, verse 6 is where I'm at, who will shepherd my people, Israel. They should have been the ones looking. They should have been the ones teaching. They should have been the ones that were leading the charge, looking for the Messiah. But really they were disinterested. They're kind of characterized this way, I think. They wanted the Scripture, but they didn't want the Savior. They knew the rules, but they didn't know the ruler that they were even talking about. There was no relationship there. They knew about the Messiah, but they never moved closer to know Him, to have a relationship with Him. Jesus spoke about this very attitude Years later, John, the Gospel of John records in chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, speaking about these very people, speaking about this very attitude, John records, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are <clears throat> they which testify of me. In other words, the Scriptures themselves testify of Jesus. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me you're not willing to have a relationship with me. You're not willing to know me. So you're missing out on eternal life. You're not willing to come to me that you may have life. It's a sad tale, really, of the religious disinterested. And I think that there's times where we all kind of struggle with that. There's times, in, and I think especially, I will say especially this year, 
especially with what's going on in our culture. There's a push culturally to be kind of disinterested in the things of God. There's a push to be disinterested in the season because of the cultural influence and the, the struggles in our uh, society and around the globe. We of all people should be the most interested. We of all people should be the, the, the most joy-filled. We of all people should be singing and shouting the loudest the praises of God. Amen? Amen. Let's look at that variety of folk. The third category of people is the Magi. The Magi. I kind of termed them this, the wise worshipers. Notice their attitudes and actions that, are, that they display. And this is actually through the, the whole of the uh, 12 verses that we've read initially. And I'm going to list a few off that I picked out of there. A desire to seek out the God of creation and to worship Him. That's who Daniel taught them about. And he gave them the signs and he gave them an understanding. And they got it and they were watching. And it didn't matter that the world that they lived in was in conflict. And it doesn't really matter that the world that we live is in conflict. We should bust right through the, the, the lines of warfare, as it were, like they did. The lines of conflict amongst nations, the lines of conflict amongst people, like they did, and go right to the Savior. Go right to this baby king that Daniel had taught him about. So they had a desire to seek out the God of creation and to worship Him. And they celebrated and were full of joy in the presence of the Lord. They celebrated and were full of joy in the presence of the Lord. And they humbled themselves before the baby Jesus. Now this was no... Uh, a lot of times we get this idea that there's three guys that just kind of wandered through the desert packing some high valuables that... Uh, you know, maybe a couple of camels. That's, that's probably not the right picture that we should have in our mind. Like if you think of the nativity scene, the nativity scene in, in full-size life form, there'd be enough people that would fill a room probably, I don't know, three, four times this size. They came as an entourage. They came as a massive group. Part of the reason why Jerusalem was troubled is when you have that many people coming from the opposite side of a war, the opposite side of conflict, and they're coming in and they're looking for somebody specific, you kind of think, eh, what's going on here? But they came in peace. And they came with a specific purpose. But it was no small group. It wasn't just three guys wearing funny hats and long robes. They came as a massive group. Probably had protection. They were probably... Uh, you know, soldiers as part of that group, protecting the valuables that they were bringing. But even though that's all true, they came in humility. They came in humility before the Lord. And they humbled themselves. They humbled themselves before this little tiny infant. At this time, I don't think that, baby, that Jesus is a baby, probably. He's not an infant. All right, he's not, a, he's not a, a newborn baby. He's probably a little kid. We don't have an exact age group. I know that he's, you know, what, under two? Because later in the story, if you read the rest of the chapter, Herod's going to get uh, really, really jealous for his throne, and he's going to send out an edict. Mary and Joseph are going to sneak away. If you read the rest of chapter two, they're going to sneak out. There was a lot. This chapter's full of angelic warning. 
If you really search through chapter 2 of Matthew, it's full of these, you know, get it in a dream, angelic warnings, go here, go there, don't go back this way, go that way. It's actually a really fascinating story if you read through it. But Jesus now is, a, I will say, a little kid, a toddler. And these, these guys came and humbled themselves in front of a toddler. Now, if you're a parent in this room, I'm sure there's times when you've been humbled by a toddler. Anybody say that? Anybody say amen? I was humbled by a toddler as early as last night. <laughs> oh. <laughs> He's not a toddler. Oh boy. If, if you weren't at the Christmas party last night, you missed a great opportunity to see me fall on my rear end uh, at the hands of a prankster. And I won't give his name out, but his, ini his initials are Robbie Hopkins. <laughs> I'm joking. We have a good time. They humbled themselves before the baby Jesus. That shows an understanding of who God is in their lives. That shows an understanding of what God was doing in light of what they were doing. It's a remarkable part of the story. Another attitude and action that they displayed is that they sacrificed their time, treasure, and reputation to seek out the Savior. They sacrificed their time. It was no small journey. They were probably, you know, this, probably, this could have taken a year or two probably to get there and get back, or maybe more. They sacrificed their time their treasure, the, the gifts that they brought. And they sacrificed their reputation as being magi, as being these dignitaries from a foreign land. They put all of that out on the line because what they believed was true was true. What they had been taught by you know, Daniel and other people in that kind of you know, scholarly lineage for all of those years bared out true and the signs kept showing up and the star was there leading them. And they got there and they, they started asking questions and even though it caused a stir, they kept asking questions. And even though it, that it, it looked bad, even though it was a huge imposition to them time-wise, and even though it was a, perhaps a big imposition to them treasure-wise, they kept pressing forward until they found the right person. Is that true of us? I'm believing it is true of us if we know Christ. They had discernment about the plans of the wicked king and they chose not to participate. Verse 12 says, Then being divinely warned in a dream they should not return to Herod, they departed for their country another way. Why? Why? Because he lied to them. Because he was being deceitful, and they saw right through the scheme. Skim back in chapter 2 to verse 8, where it says, And he, talking about Herod, and he sent them to Bethlehem, He's wanting them to do his dirty work. 
sent the Magi to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this young child. And when you have found him, you know, when you have put a pin on him, bring back word to me so that I may come and worship him also. It's a straight up lie. They saw right through it. So being warned of the plan, they went a different direction. Shows you the cunning deceitfulness of the flesh there in Herod. But it also shows you the attentiveness of the Magi. While the Magi may have not understood the full picture of who Jesus was, they were driven by what they did know to seek him out and to worship him. And to me, and I think if we all take an honest look at that, that's an exercise of faith. That's an exercise of faith. They simply knew him as the baby-born king of the Jews. There's a couple of verses that, uh, uh, that I'd like to share outside of Matthew chapter 1, if you'll indulge me for a moment. is that the Apostle Paul spoke also of Jesus as a king as well. It's not normally his description of Christ, but he uses this phrase, king eternal. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 17, 15 through 17, Paul says this, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ, might be shown to all long-suffering, uh, might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So because of who Jesus is, now Paul's writing, you know, many, many years later, decades later, and so he's putting all these pictures together of who Christ is. He sees, he's, he's no doubt been taught about the Magi in their part, their part of the story that Matthew records in chapter 2, but now decades later Paul is talking about Jesus, adding the whole picture together of who this king is, who this baby king was, and now who Christ is. So he goes on in verse 17 and says, Now to the king eternal, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You'd think that would be the end of a book that Paul wrote, but it's actually the very beginning of the book. It comes very at the, at the early end of 1 Timothy. But he uses that phrase, King Eternal, because that's who this baby king that the wise men were looking for, that's who he ultimately is. That's ultimately who he's always been. And as John penned the revelation of Christ, the revelation of Jesus, he also described the eternal king. In revelation chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Grace to you and peace from him who is, is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits <clears throat> who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Not only is he king eternal, but he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's over everything. Nothing escapes his notice. John goes on to say, To him who loves us, loved us, and washed us 
from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his, <clears throat> to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. There's a great piece here that comes out that we don't... I've, I've been describing in First Peter the idea that do, do we understand that we are royal priesthood? And I kind of emphasized a week or so ago that the priesthood side of it, do we see ourselves as priests in Christianity? Do we see ourselves as priests of God? Do we see ourselves in that way? Do we see ourselves as kings? Men, do we see ourselves as God's royalty if we're in Christ? Because we are. We can share in that, not as a replacement for who Christ is, but because of who Christ is, we can share in that royal seat, as it were. For those who have been washed in the blood, John says, washed our sins, washed away in his own blood. A couple of reflections as we gear up to close and sing a last Christmas carol. This baby King Jesus, as innocent as he was, as tiny as he was, as seemingly insignificant in his own culture, as I say seemingly, he wasn't seemingly insignificant, he's extremely significant, but in his own culture he seemed insignificant. He wasn't even on the radar till these guys really showed up on the scene and started to stir things up. But as seemingly insignificant as he might have been in his own culture, this little baby King Jesus, he caused seekers to look for him. He caused and he stirred in people a desire to seek him out. And that should be us. And that should be a part of our, uh, our, our daily life in regard to how we interact with other people. We're causing a curiosity in people to seek and find this King Jesus. King Jesus empowers those who are serving Him to press forward on in life's journey. To continue to press on. I'm sure this journey wasn't... If you think about the, uh, ge- your, our Middle Eastern geography, that's not an easy trek that they took. And it didn't really matter that there was more people. That just means that there's potentially more headaches. But this baby King Jesus, the Jesus that we serve, the Jesus who saved us, He's the one that empowers and propels us as He propelled them to keep pressing on, to keep pressing on, regardless of life's journey. King Jesus causes us to fall on our knees and to worship Him, just like He did the Magi. King Jesus propels His people towards service and sacrifice. And He is not stressed about the counterfeit or the disinterested. That's one of, I think, the hidden looks into chapter 2 of Matthew. Now you get it so you can say rationally, well, He's a baby, what does He, you know, what does He know at that point in time? Uh, We can't go there. And here's the reason why we can't go there. is because if you read all the way through the Gospels, and all four of them, you see the adult Jesus, the adult version, have the same almost childlike uh, uh, disposition. 
That he wasn't stressed about the, the counterfeit people that were in the culture. He wasn't stressed about the religious disinterested. He took them somewhere in conversation. Because when they tried to, when they switched from being disinterested to gotcha mode, he just took them to the Old Testament and let them fall in their own trap. The beauty is, the beauty is, is that same Jesus, though, when people came to him in humility, when people come to him in a genuineness uh, of attitude that wanted to learn, that wanted to know more about him, that wanted to know more about what he was teaching, when they came in humility in the reality of where they were in life, he met them with love and grace and mercy. It's a beautiful picture for us even here today. No, he's not stressed out about the counterfeit or the disinterested. He simply continues to come closer to his people. He simply continues to come closer to his people. As I mentioned when I started, in the Old Testament you have this picture of God that's distant. This God that's still the people's king, but he's, but he's distant, and it's an occasional conversation between him and a prophet or him and a king or a leader with Moses, or Joshua, some of these guys we see in the Old Testament. But there's still this distance. And then this little baby shows up to walk amongst the people. He's here for a time. He's here for a season. But he's definitely here for a purpose. He's here to save us. He's here to teach us how to live. He's here to, to lead us in a new way. He's here to open up and to declare the kingdom of God in people's lives. He's here to, he's here to offer eternal life to those that would believe in faith. But that's not even the end of the story. And I don't even have time to get into the rest of the story, but the king even comes closer than that. Because the king now resides inside the lives of his believers in the form of the Holy Spirit. In the form of the Holy Spirit. And throughout history, throughout history, we see this storyline playing out. But now the storyline plays out in and through your life, Christ follower. You have the King in you, the hope of glory in you, the power of God in you in the form of the Holy Spirit, leading, guiding, comforting, convicting, leading us towards God, saying no to this, but yes to this. Remember this. Walk away from that. That's the power of the King. And it's in the life of the believer. Amen? Amen. This might be my shortest sermon of all time. But we are going to be done. I wanted to be done early. And so worship team, if you will come on up, we will close with our last song. Merry Christmas to everybody. I hope you have a great rest of the week. Spend tons of time with family, friends, having a good time. Don't let the furniture get away from you. In that moment of weakness, that moment of, where did my chair go? Don't let it get away from you. But have fun this week and worship, 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 just like the Magi did, worship the King. Worship the King this week. Amen? Let's sing our last song.